Well, welcome. My name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to have you join us this morning. Thanks for being here. Um, you know, holy moly, this is three beautiful days in a row, man. It, spring is here in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Spring is sprung. I love it. Glad to have you. Thanks for being here. We're, uh, if you've never been here before, we kind of just make it clear. We're a church for people who have kind of given up on church. And so if you're checking this out, we hope that you just, God would say to you, mi casa, su casa. Make yourself at home and uh, enjoy this. Uh, so we are in part, uh, part three of a series that we started uh, a few weeks ago called Spring Cleaning. If you have your Bibles, um, you can open them up to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to camp out here. I'm going to go through uh, a lot of uh, passage or a big story in there. John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can maybe find it on our app there. Um, but uh, basically, um, in Psalm 51, uh, King David said a prayer, and he made this prayer after what seemed to be probably a very long and difficult uh, winter season in his own life, similar to what we've just kind of are coming out of. He said this, he said, God, uh, create in me a clean heart, clean my heart up, and renew a faithful spirit within me. And I think that there's something that in that that we need to remind ourselves, and that is, is that um, the Bible tells us that, the, that we have to guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life, and that there are things that get into our heart that can really get us and mess us up and mess us, our lives up. And so over the last few weeks, we've been asking God to, to do some cleaning in our hearts to help expose and dump some of that emotional garbage some of that mental clutter that just we picked up along the way this last winter. Um, we're talking about things like pride and getting rid of pride and, and lust and anger and bitterness uh, and uh, resentment, those things that just kind of turn our heart black. Last week, we talked a little bit about dumping um, our feelings of inadequacy and insecurities. Anybody struggle with insecurities here? I, I, in fact, it was fascinating last week how many people said that that resonated with them. I talked to a guy right after service. He came up to me and said, Pastor Troy, I just got to tell you, um, my, my, I think my wife is, is, has left me. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, I think my wife has left me because she thinks that I'm insecure. And I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. And then he turned around and goes, oh, wait a second. She was just in the bathroom. Never mind. You'll get that later, but maybe that wasn't all that funny. <laughs> uh, but I think we, I'm looking at things that we all struggle with, and that was one that I think many of us do, and this week uh, is true. I want to talk about um, something that I think we wrestle with. I want to talk about healing from shame. Shame. Uh, I think we all carry some level of shame with us, things that we've done in the past. Um, and this is especially true for you if you're a religious person, you have been around church a lot, that you probably carry some shame, because over the years, Christians have been really good at kind of turning this into a shame-based faith, that there's just some churches that are really good that make you feel worse <laughs> as you leave the church than when you came into the church about yourself, and that just shame is kind of one of those things that gets on us and messes us up, and you might be surprised if that's been your experience um, to know that God never, never intended for you and I to experience shame. 
It's not supposed to be a part of our life. Some of you wrestle with it. You've got some junk in your trunk <laughs> that you've been dragging along with you uh, that's been dragging you down for years, and you just can't break free of it, and you just have gotten used to it. But God never intended us to experience shame. Um, you might look this in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, in G- Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, makes a simple statement. Um, it says this, that Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no Shame. That's incredible to me. Not the naked part, the no shame part. <laughs> that they were, there was no uh, shame in them. Here you have two adults who are clearly exposed and vulnerable. Um, God sees them and knows everything about them. And yet these two people have nothing to hide. They could stand before God without any like, oops, you know. There's nothing weighing them down from what they've done. There's nothing holding them back from being who they truly are. They're living totally transparent and shame-free lives. But you know that it didn't stay that way. You know the rest of the story. The serpent came and tempted them to disobey God. And when they did, it's interesting what they did. They felt such a deep sense of shame that they hid themselves from God. They, They actually went and hid from God, their creator, And they began to try to cover themselves up and hide from that. In other words, these guys didn't just have a feeling that they had done something bad. Um, They had a feeling that they had now become something bad, right? That they weren't worthy. And uh, and that's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is uh, behavior-based. Guilt comes from the things that we do, some of the things that we know we shouldn't do. But shame is identity-based. Shame goes deeper. Shame is based on who we are. It, it, that's what it does. It goes to the core of that. Guilt says, I did something bad. But when you start thinking this way, shame says, I am something bad. I've become something bad. That's shame. And boy, let me tell you what. Our enemy loves it, loves it when you and I feel ashamed. He wants us to stay in a perpetual place of shame. Why? Because once he gets us to forget who we really are and how much God really loves us, he's got us. That's why we do dumb things and we destroy our lives because we've forgotten who we are and how much God really loves us. And the enemy uses shame and he uses condemnation to push us down and to separate us from our creator and separate us from others. It keeps us kind of at arm's length from people. And he also separates us, worst of all, from our calling and from our purpose in life that we never are willing to step up and step out to the great things that God has laid before us. And so here's the thing. Jesus came to break that in our lives. I want to make this very clear. Jesus came to break the power of shame in our lives. In John chapter 3, verse 17, it's a verse that doesn't get talked about enough because it's so powerful. But the reason it does is we, we always focus on verse 16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believe in him shall eter- inherit eternal life, shall not perish, but inherit eternal life. But 317 says something that we forget, and that is this God did not send his Son into this world to condemn the world. Contrary to what you've experienced at church or religion or what you've heard, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, God isn't saying to, God isn't saying to anyone here this morning, shame on you. Shame on you. 
Instead, God today is saying to you and I, shame off of you. Get that thing off of you. Quit carrying it around with you. I don't want it. You don't need it. It is a waste. God didn't come to condemn us. He, he, didn't, he doesn't want to shame us. He, he doesn't, he's not even disappointed in us. You might be feeling like God is just uh, shaking his head. God isn't even disappointed. The word disappointment isn't found anywhere in the original language in the scriptures. God understands you, and he loves you, and he knows your circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean that he wants to leave you where you are. He wants to save us. He wants to save us from that inner darkness that's slowly destroying us, that anger, that resentment, that bitterness, that shame. You name it, God wants to heal us from all of it. God didn't send his son into this world to shame it, but to heal it and to restore it, to put us back to that place, that original place of where we're walking with him free and back into that place of perfection that we were created to have. Today's story is, a, is an illustration of that truth, a perfect illustration, in fact, I would say. Um, it's a story that most of you are familiar with. Uh, I'll, I'll say it by what most of us know. It's about the woman at the well. We're all familiar about the woman at the well. And uh, it's found in John chapter 4. And I'm going to read almost the entirety of it. I'm going to add a few comments as I go through it. But here's the thing I want to just set you up for. Most of you, like I said, know this story. But um, there is a twist at the end of this. How many like a movie that has kind of a, a hook or a twist at the end, at the end of the story? Three of you. Okay. Anyway, uh, there's a twist at the end of this one today. And it'll surprise you. Even those of you who are most familiar with the story, I promise you, you probably aren't going to know this. And so, will you hang in with me till I get to the end? All right. Three of you again. Boy, my insecurities are starting to come back. They're starting to flood. All right. All right. That's not your problem. Okay. Here it is. It says this. I'm stepping into God. Here it is. Here it is. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 1 says that. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist... In other words, Jesus knew this was dangerous. John the Baptist was a threat to the religious status quo, and the religious leaders did not like him. And then they realized, oh my gosh, Jesus is getting more followers. When Jesus learned that they saw that, he left Judea, and he went back to the lake, the Sea of Galilee. This time, it's interesting, John says, that he had to go through Samaria. It's interesting that he said that he had to go. In other words, Jesus had a divine appointment there. You'll see what it is. It says, so he came to a town in Samaria, an area within uh, Israel called, and the town was called Sukkah, and it's near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son. He says that Jacob's well was there. How many remember Jacob? Jacob is pretty famous in the Old Testament. Uh, God gave him a different name, gave him the name of Israel. That's how we know the nation of Israel. He's father. Okay, but Jacob was also famous because why? He wrestled with God, right? And I love that this whole thing happens at the well that he founded and that is named after him because there is a little bit of a wrestling match that goes on here. You'll, you'll see that happen. And it says this, that Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came up to draw some water from the well. And Jesus said to her, he said, could I have a drink? Could I have a drink? Now, his disciples had gone into town to buy some food, so he was by himself. The woman said to him something interesting. She said, whoa, 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 don't you, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. What are you asking? How can you ask me for a drink? Aren't you aware there's some stuff going on between us? Because uh, John says something that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. We'll, we'll talk about why. 
uh, Jesus answered her. He said, well, that may be true, but if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you some living water, some water that is life. I love her answer. She says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to to, uh, draw with. This well is deep, right? Where can you get this living water or whatever, right? And she says, oh, by the way, do you think that you're actually greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, who dug this well, found this well, and he drank from it as himself and his sons and his livestock? This chick is a, I said chick, I'm sorry. I can say that about her, I think. She's a pistol. You watch this conversation. It's one of the fascinating conversations in the Gospels. She's got an edge to her. She's, she's kind of like a Northwest Colorado woman, Amen. She she ain't going to just take it, right? She's like, whatever, right? And so Jesus answered her. He said, okay, everyone, let me explain. Everyone who drinks this water in this well is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, let me tell you, the water that I give them, okay, the water that I give them will become in them a spring, that will be a, a source of water and a source of eternal life for them and for people that they come in contact with. Now, uh, uh, this is brilliant. The woman said, sir, uh, this is funny. I can almost hear the sarcasm. Sir, please give me this water so that I won't get thirsty ever again and have to keep coming here to this well and dealing with weirdos like you to hear stories like that. That would be nice. Please give me that water. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating that, that she's, kind of, she's kind of kicking back on that. It is clear that she's not impressed with this big promise. She's had and heard big promises from men before, right? And so Jesus then goes to that subject. He says, okay, well, before we get to that, would you go and get your husband and come on back? And I think there was a pause, and I think she kind of went, no, um, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, yeah, that's true. You, you don't have a husband. What you've said is true. Um, you've had five husbands, I think, and the man that you're with now, he's not your husband either, is he? And uh, she hears that, and uh, she quickly changes the subject. She's like, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about religion. <laughs> so she goes, this. she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet you have the ability to see some things. Let's, let's talk about this debate that's been going on. You're a religious guy. Help me understand. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain right here. But you Jews claim that we need to come down to Jerusalem and worship on that, that place. Jesus says, ma'am, believe me, uh, you're, you're touching on something here. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor on, in Jerusalem. You see, you Samaritans worship what uh, you don't know. We, we Jews, we worship what we know, um, for salvation is from the Jews. But I love what he says next. He says, yet a time is coming, a time that I think all of us have been longing for, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. It'll be life, and it'll be based in truth. It'll be based on who God really is, rather than some picture of him that we've created. And he says, that is the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. And um, I have a feeling, in a way, he was implying to her something. He was saying, sis, you went to religion, and my sense is, is that you were certain that I was judging you, maybe, or I was about to judge you. 
Um, probably because you've had run-ins with religious people before who have judged you and who have, uh, you know, judged your lifestyle. But here's the thing. You need to understand this one thing. God cares more about what's happening on the inside of a person than he does on what's on the outside. God cares more about what's going on in your heart than all this religious activity that we do on the outside and this put on that we put on and act like everything. He knows what's going on in your heart. And I think it stunned her a little bit. It says the woman uh, then said this. She said, and it's almost like she had a premonition. She said, you know, I have heard that there is a Messiah coming, that there is one who is going to come and fix this broken world, this sad broken life that I'm living and that he's going to come and he's going to explain what's real and what's true to every one of us. And then Jesus, I think, did something. I think he said, Kim, I, the one whom I'm speaking to you right now, am he. In other words, it's on. This is about to happen. What you've been longing for. The man that you've been looking for your whole life here. John says that instantly, about that time, all the disciples showed back up from town. They're jihan, what's happening? High five. And they see Jesus talking to a woman and they're surprised that he's doing that. But no one dared ask him, why are you doing this? Because Jesus just had a knack for doing things that were strange and weird and awkward and uh, totally countercultural, so they didn't even bother with it. And it says this, that she saw these guys and that she got up and she left her, her water jar after hearing what Jesus had said and the woman went back to town to this place where these people did not, wasn't very popular. And she said to those people, come, meet a man who told me everything I ever did, but he, did, he didn't do it in a way that you guys do. He did it in a way that seemed to, there was no condemnation. He wasn't rubbing my nose in it. He knew what I'd done, but he still loved me. Come meet a guy. Could this be the Messiah? And John ends the story by saying that the people flocked out of the town uh, and made their way up to where Jesus was. And many of the Samaritans from that town were kind of believing in him because of this woman's testimony that he told her everything that she did. And then it says that Jesus stayed a few more days and he began, and because of his words and his teaching, many more became believers. In fact, they said to the woman, hey, you know what? We no longer believe because of what you've said. We now uh, we now believe because of what we've heard ourselves. We know that this man really is the Savior of the world, which, by the way, points out something. If you haven't experienced Jesus yourself firsthand, if you haven't investigated himself, you owe it to yourself to check it out because the church has tried, and we've done a poor job representing him and sharing him with the world, but it would be good for you to go and find out yourself what he said and who he is and make a decision on yourself rather than what you've heard say. Amen? And so there's a lot going on in this story. And uh, before we get to the twist and before we pray together at the end, um, I want to give you a little context and I want to point out a few things. Uh, Jesus comes and he sits by the well because he's tired and thirsty from a long journey. He's alone because his disciples have gone into town to get some food, which he could have gone with him and he probably could have had the same kind of impact on this community that he eventually did. But Jesus had more on his mind. I want you to get this. It is clear Jesus had to go to Samaria and he had to go to this well because he wanted to heal and restore a broken heart and a broken life, singular. 
He saw this woman, and he had to get to her. Um, And so this woman, John says, came by herself to the well to draw water, and that she was, first of all, he tells us that she was a Samaritan. Uh, And this is the first thing I need to point out. Samaritans were despised by Jews. Um, This was accepted. It came from a civil war that had happened centuries earlier. Uh, The area of Samaria, they began to abandon the Jewish faith, began to kind of do some things differently. They began to intermarry with outsiders. And and the reason God was against that is is that because they would eventually pick up their religious and and, uh, pagan practices and integrate them and their false gods. And so they began to kind of came up with their own version of this faith and of God that they created out of, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so Jews wouldn't speak to Samaritans. Uh, they were brothers and, 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 and they were related, but they were so far away from where they were to truth. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He talked to this woman. And not only that, he talked to this woman alone, which was unusual for a man to do, not necessarily because of impropriety, but because um, women in that culture were so far beneath men on the social ladder. That wasn't something that God initiated. That just was a cultural thing that they came up with and that many cultures of that time did. And my point is, is that this conversation that Jesus had with this woman was a radical, radical departure from the norm. And so the second thing that I want to point out is that they had a discussion about the differences of worship that there's different ways to worship. And the Samaritans, uh, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. That's, where they, that's what she's talking about. We, we, we worship here, you worship there. Mount Gerizim was near this town. It's still there. And, uh, but the Jews worshiped on Mount Zion, which was down in Jerusalem, where the temple, well, Solomon's temple. And the temple, as you know, we've talked about this, was the center of Jewish life. Everything revolved around the temple. God was at the temple. If you had business to do with God, you go to the temple. If you had some sin that you needed to get dealt with, you had to go to the temple. You had to make a sacrifice. You had to do the temple, right? And Jesus points out to her, he said, listen to me, this, this fascination with going and finding God here and there, uh, I l- listen, one day it's not going to matter where people worship because true worship isn't about a place. True worship is about your heart, what's going on in your heart. And and that was part of the new that Jesus came to bring. Remember, Jesus came to bring something new, not an extension of the old, an add-on to the old. He came something brand new, and one of the things Jesus wanted to do was get God out of the building, get God out of the box, out of the temple, and remind people that God wants to reside in our hearts. And so... The third thing that I want to point out, and this is the most glaring detail of this story, is the Samaritan woman herself. Um, John says that she came to the well alone and that she came at noontime. And that was unusual because it would be typical for women to go to the well together early in the morning to get water, to avoid the heat. Plus, water was necessary in the morning to clean and to cook and to go for the day. And so they would come together to get water, the fact that she is late and that she's alone points out that she probably had no friends. And at worst, that she might have been shunned by her community, that she really was an outcast. Now, in her discussion with Jesus, we find out perhaps maybe why that was so. Um, She's had five husbands. She's had five failed marriages 
And then Jesus point, you know, reminded her that the man that she's with, and she admitted it, uh, isn't her husband. It's possible that he's someone else's husband. She's not decided not to marry this guy. Marriage hasn't worked. And uh, in other words, um, this woman had a man problem. <laughs> amen? Ladies, amen? <laughs> and, and now, not only that, it's possible and probable that this woman's man problem had now become a woman problem. I mean, you wonder how many of these men that she'd been with belonged to other women in that community. And so they did not like her. And she had some issues, and I think we can agree that this woman was not a saint. She had participated and had gotten into a cycle that was destroying herself and people around her, or that she may have broken some homes and some marriages, right? Now, here's the thing. I don't want to skip over this, but there were a lot of men in that town that had issues too, amen? There were some men that were doing some things, and some of the religious people in that community probably would have said, God needs to judge this adulterous town. But what did Jesus do? Did he judge? Did he condemn? Um, it's interesting what he didn't do to me. Um, he didn't come riding in on his high horse um, looking down on her. Instead, Jesus humbled himself. He catches her when she's alone and not in front of a lot of people. And I believe that Jesus' approach and his humility um, was key to her life change and was key to their friendship. And it's something that you and I, Christians, could learn from, how we relate to people who are in our lives who are struggling and have brokenness and have failed and are failing there's a humility about that. In spite of their cultural and moral differences, uh, Jesus just started a simple conversation with the Samaritan woman. And that was an act of humility, not authority. He didn't come, I'm over you, I'm better, you need to buck up. He knew everything about her. He knew that she's not a, that a, she, he knows that she's not a saint. He knows that she has sin in her life. And in that culture which demanded separation, uh, from sin and from sinners, Jesus steps into it. He engages her. And he engages her in a friendly, uh, relationally way. He says to her in verse 7, um, could I have a drink? Will you give me a drink? And, and, and it's important that we stop here for a second and think about this. Remember this. Jesus was the visible representation of an invisible God. In other words, God knew that throughout the ages we have misunderstood and misinterpreted some of his actions and we've created him to be something that he's not. And to clear that up, God came down in the form of a man, God in a bod, and he, and he, and he cleared up some of the misconceptions. And so when you and I don't know what God is like, all we need to do is look at Jesus. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And, and, and you wonder, where did we get this idea that God wouldn't engage with me because I've blown it? God is too holy and too righteous to engage with sinners. We don't get that from Jesus because when Jesus was here, he engaged with sinners. So much so that his nickname was Friend of Sinners. Right? He was constantly eating with them and drinking with them and healing them and loving them and talking to them and praying with sinners just like this woman Jesus was not offended by sinners. He, wasn't, he was attracted to them. And vice versa, they were attracted to him. One of the most interesting things to me is that the people that were most unlike Jesus 
we're most attracted to him. I get around some of you, you're so good, you're so pure, and I feel like a bad monkey when you're, I'm like, I don't want to be around that person, they're too good, I'm bad. Jesus had the opposite effect. There's something about his, his goodness that drew people to him. People that were far away from God wanted to be near him. I love that. And so um, he wasn't offended and she was open. Jesus wasn't repulsed by her, her at all. He was loving and he was kind and yet he was truthful and he was direct. And, and she took it. She was open to it. Um, she sensed his kindness and his concern for his life, for her life. And she received the truth that, she, that he was sharing. I mean, think about it. It's so weird. Um, even though Jesus brought some of her skeletons out of the closet, um, that didn't stop her. She, she ran in town and she brought, every, she brought everyone she knew out to meet him. Most of us run from people who know our secret stuff. We don't want to talk about it. But she was like, oh. There was something about what he, it's as if, think about this, I'm positive, it's as if the shame that had run her life had completely vanished in that little conversation with Jesus. Something happened. I mean, years of feeling alone and despised and guilt-ridden were gone in just a few minutes with Jesus. I mean, here's this lady who's lived under a cloud of shame her whole life, and that cloud has followed her everywhere she went. And she would walk into places people would whisper and talk about her. There were rumors and stories about how she had broken up homes and marriages. She was ostracized by everyone, by the other women living in the village. And so this woman, get this, she walked alone. And she worked alone. She couldn't be with other people. She felt unworthy. Unworthy to be loved, unworthy to be a part of even the community. And again, that goes back to the difference between guilt and shame, right? Guilt has to do with your behavior, but shame goes to our identity. When we walk in shame, our identity, it goes to that. It's how we see ourselves. A guilty person will say, oh, I, I made a mistake. And, and, and they'll live with a little bit of regret. And, and, and we do. We have regrets for the mistakes that we've made. But a person living in shame doesn't say, I made a mistake. They say, I am a mistake. And they live not with regret, but with despair. I am cursed with this life that I'm never going to, this cloud, this burden that I'll never get out from under. It's a big difference. I'll always be this way. And we, one of the things that we're fortunate with is, is that the, God has given the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit resides in us, right? And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our guilt and of our sin. And that's a good thing. Uh, conviction is a good thing. It's like sticking your hand in the fire and it burns. That's a good thing. Because you go, ooh. And when we feel guilt and conviction, that's a warning. This is going to cause some problems. It's going to cause some pain and damage. So it's back out. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of, of the guilt of the sinful things we've done. But the Holy Spirit never Never put shame on you. If you feel shamed, you feel like what you've done is now who you are, that is the enemy, and he is constantly accusing of that, and he loves it. And Jesus, he never went to who she was. He only, he only pointed out a little bit of what she'd been through, but not what she was guilty of being. He did not shame her or condemn her. Why? Because the Son of God didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
And that's what he did in her world, as you'll see here in just a minute. But before I get there, um, I just want to ask a question. And not just with you, quietness of your heart. Do you ever find yourself defining yourself by some of your failures? Do you ever kind of find yourself thinking, I, I'm not a good person. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad person. I'm, or I'm an idiot. Do you ever say things like that? I'm an idiot. Or I'm a divorcee. I'm damaged goods. I'm unlovable because of what I've done. I'm a loser. Ever? The truth is, is that other people will define you that way and that religion often defines you. And, and, and like I said, you might even define yourself that way. But God, God does not look at you that way. God sees your failures and he sees your sins, but he knows that's not who you are. He, he sees you for who you are. And you, my friend, are his son or his daughter. And he loves you. End of story. He loves you. You're his child. Nothing can do that. Now, yes, he sees your failures and he wants to heal you from that brokenness and he wants to cleanse you from that, those sins and those failures and that shame. And, and, and here's the thing. To find healing um, from that, all you must simply do, all you and I can do, is to look at Jesus on the cross. Um, let, me, let me say this very categorically. You need to understand this. this you want to find healing from shame? You want to break the power of shame in your life? Uh, the only way to heal from shame is to turn your focus from who you are and what you've done to who Christ is and to what he's done. To shift that focus, to turn from thinking about and dwelling on who you are and what you've done to who Jesus is, Son of God, God in a bod, and what he has done for you. Because on the cross, Jesus removed shame from the equation once and for all. Shame was broken. I know this because um, a few weeks ago, I was preparing for Easter. I was looking at some passages in the Bible on the crucifixion, and I saw three words in the Bible that I have never really Notice before. I've read them before, but I never really, I mean, I was talking to Charlie about it, and I was like, I mentioned the verse, and he's like, boom, 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 he said the three words. I'm like, I've never, I never saw that. Maybe you've seen it. I'm a little slow on the uptake, but here's this brilliant thing. I've always focused on this portion of the version, uh, passage. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the writer says this. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. I love that. It's a, it, it tells us that Jesus was willing to endure the pain and the torture and the suffering and the shame and the, the, all of that. He was willing to go through the cross. Why? Because there was a joy on the other side. And that joy was something that we would experience. He did it for us. That he knew what the cross would mean for us. It would change our eternity. It would set us free from guilt. And Jesus, for that joy that would bring to him and it would bring to us, he endured all that nastiness and that horror for us. But then the writer says three little words that I've always, I've always, it says, scorning its shame. Scorning its shame. Jesus scorned the shame that was attached to being hung 
on a tree. There's a shame to that. Being uh, attached, he scorned a shame that was attached to the cross and by proxy that has been attached to us. He scorned it. Jesus despised and rejects shame. He does, it, it just, he rejects it and he hates it. From the beginning of the world, he's despised the effects that shame has had on us because it's robbed us of our intimacy with our creator, caused us to hide from him and not have a connection to him, which is why he created us. He hates it. He despised the shame that showed up in the Garden of Eden. He despised the shame of David's adultery and of Peter's um, denial and of Judas's betrayal. And in the same way, God scorns the shame that you and I feel from our hidden and public sin, our lies and our actions and our failures and all that secret stuff that we don't want anyone to know and we hope that God doesn't know. Jesus despises and rejects the shame that is attached to what you and I have done, to the words that we have said, to our thoughts, He scorned all of that when he died on the cross. On the cross, Jesus looked at shame. He looked at our shame and said, I despise you. I reject you. I do not accept it. And and, and you are nothing to me. I did not come to condemn the world. I came to seek and save the lost and to give my life as a ransom so everyone can go free and live without the shame of the past dragging them down. That's why he died on the cross, to break that on us so that we don't have to live and hide from God anymore and hide from ourselves and hide from each other, that we can be free to be who we really are. The only way to heal from shame is to turn our focus from who you are and what you've done to who Christ is and what Christ has done. Pastor Charlie said this last week um, or two weeks ago, the best way to deal with some of these things that we're finding in our heart that we want out is to do simple three things, to see it, Say it, and then to leave it. It's just, it's just how you clean out the closet. See what you don't want there, call it out, and dump it out. See it, recognize shame in your life. When you find yourself talking to yourself or a voice telling you, bad monkey, you bad, bad monkey. Catch that and go, no, 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 no. No, I'm going to say what the truth is. The truth is, is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If I'm feeling condemned, if I'm feeling like something that I'm not, that's another voice. That's from the enemy. And then once you see it and say it, you leave it. You drop it and leave it for good. Is that, that's it. Um, now, before I pray, let me tell you about the woman at the well. And, and I promise you that there will be a twist at the end of her story. And this is, inspires me. Um, the, stor- the story of the woman at the well, it doesn't end in verse 42 of John chapter 4. Her story is much longer and much more fascinating than what's just written in John's gospel. According to other historical accounts, the Samaritan woman at the well had a name. Her name, according to tradition, was Photini. P-H-O-T-I-N-I. Photo, which means light. And so there's an element of her life her name being Enlightened One. (laughs) And uh, she went from being known as a notorious, sinful woman to becoming known as a saint. There was a change in her. 
Um, it's said um, that she was baptized on the day of Pentecost when the church was born, that she was there when people had gathered in Jerusalem after Jesus had been resurrected. Her with thousands of others who saw the resurrected of Christ got baptized on that day. And that the early church, this is interesting, the early church equated Photini equal to the apostles. Uh, in fact, she was heralded as the church's first evangelist because she led her entire village to Christ. Not only that, she led her family. She had five sisters and two sons that she led to Christ. That can sometimes be harder to bring people to the Lord sometimes, right? And, uh, and she eventually became a missionary. Um, she, her, her and her sisters and her sons traveled the world. They went to Africa, and they traveled around the Mediterranean sharing the good news of what Jesus had done for them. Now, we're told that at some point, uh, the Roman emperor around the 60s was a guy by the name of Nero, and you know he's not a good guy, pretty anti-Christian. He became aware of what she was doing, and so he had them all arrested. Her and her whole family were arrested, and they were brought to Rome to stand trial. When they arrived, Nero placed them under the supervision of the imperial court, and his daughter, Domina was her name, put her over charge, her and her servants. Apparently, Fotina led Domina to Jesus. She became a Christian. You know Nero, he lost his ever-loving mind. He was so enraged by this that he uh, put Fotini to death by throwing her down an empty and dry well as a way to mock her and her encounter with Jesus. Fotini was martyred for sharing her story about what Jesus had done for her and her faith in Jesus. And years later, uh, in an inspiring twist of fate, this sinful, sinful Samaritan woman became sainted. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church granted her sainthood, and they celebrate her every spring. I love that. I love that. There's no doubt um, that her life um, was forever changed the day she met Jesus. Um, she drank freely from the living water that Jesus offered her. Her focus changed from who she was and what she had done to who Jesus was and what he had done for her. And she never thirsted again. A spring of eternal life flowed out of her. The cloud of guilt and shame that had plagued her life and had displaced her from her community and from her calling never, never returned. God rewrote her story. And he wants to do the same with us. There are things that we wish we could go back and erase in our life and we can't, and those things kind of drag with us. Uh, there are things that you and I that we're ashamed of that we've said and that we've done, and they just are hanging over our heads. Maybe you, like me, have asked God to forgive you, but that shame still hangs over us for that. Instead of focusing on what we've done, we need to focus on what Jesus has done. He scorned our shame by dying on the cross for our sins. And if he scorned our shame, we should do the same. We should scorn it and get rid of it. 
And so I just want you for a moment, maybe this has been easy for you, that you know the thing that you feel most ashamed about. It, it haunts you, it follows you. Maybe it was something long ago, maybe it was something short ago, but it's there and it's with you and every now and then it pops up. I don't know about you, there's this memory that I have in my life of something I did when I was young and dumb um, and it was just more stupid. I won't tell you because it's so embarrassing. Um, and every now and then I'll be going along and it'll pop up. I'll go, oh, God, that's so horrible. And I'll go to God, and I found myself, you know, I'll go to God, and I've done this before. I remember one time I just went to God and said, God, would you forgive me for that thing? Because the Bible says that if you confess your sins, if you say it, God will uh, forgive you of all unrighteousness. Any crazy thing, even that, he'll forgive you. And, uh, and so I, God, will you forgive me of that? And you know what I heard God say to me one time? He's like, what? That, that thing, don't make me say it. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. My God, that thing, the time that I did this and this and this, God's like, I don't remember that. I'm like, I did it. He goes, yeah, but I don't remember that, and you should forget it too. Because that's what he said. He said, when we confess our sins, that he removes our sins, our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. And that they are thrown into, I love this, they are thrown into the sea of forgetfulness, gone forever. Our God, those confessed sins that you've given God, he doesn't remember them. They're gone. You and I remember them, and our enemy remembers them, and God hates that we do. And he's like, you need to scorn that. You need to reject it and despise it because it will cause you to live a lower life than you, were caught, you wanted to live. So I want to just pray with you. Maybe you have one or two of those or ten. Um, Let's just pray. Father, we come to you today, and every one of us uh, can picture right now and have a memory of something that we're ashamed of. And we, if we haven't, we're saying it now. God, forgive us. We're sorry. We confess this to you. We see it, and we say it, and we confess it, and we hold it before you. And you promise that no matter what it was, no matter how, how horrible, how evil, how embarrassing, you said that you would forgive us for it. And so today... We accept that forgiveness and we know that we can be forgiven because you paid for that sin on the cross and you don't want us paying for it anymore. And so Lord, now today we scorn our shame. We reject it. And we say, shame off. Shame off. I am free from that. And I have something God wants me to do and I'm not gonna let my past hold me back from that. I'm stepping into my future. And I believe that you have something wonderful for each one of us. Help us to scorn that shame and to repel it and to despise it and to not let it hang around with us anymore. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you nailed our shame to the cross and it is done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, that was heavy. I know. I'm sorry. But would you like some Cuban food? This whole message, Cuban food, kept, I'm like, hey, hey listen, I, I want to just encourage you, if you're here this morning and that message wasn't for you, you're cool, uh, but you're struggling with something else, you need some help, 
That's what we're here for. We're a church. We got it. We'd love to help you. Myself, some of my friends, we hang out down here. Love to meet with you. A lot of people are going to go that way. But if you've got something hanging on you, you want to pray, you need some help, come talk to us. Number two, my friend Rini over here, she would love to meet you. If you're new to our church or newish, uh, she has a gift for you. Just love to say hi and get your name and say hello and welcome you. And so stop down there. And then the rest of you, hey, go right next door here in a moment. Uh, they're going to have that kickoff to Cuban, some good food. Did you have a good day at church today? Me too, guys. God bless you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week for part four of spring cleaning.